significantly, the bookends of the last five Psalms of the Book of Psalms is the word Alleluia. Alleluia is a kind of liturgical refrain calling sleepy congregations to wake up. Praise the Lord. Morning and evening prayer in the Anglican prayer book echoes this when early in the service the leader says, Praise the Lord. And everyone responds, The Lord's name be praised. Alleluia in these Psalms is not there to draw us into some spiritual euphoria. Rather, it's a signal challenging us to ask, who is this God that we would want to praise him? We can only truly worship God when we know something about him. In his conversation with a woman in a well in, at a well in Samaria that we read about in John chapter 4, Jesus said that true worshippers worship God in spirit and in truth. Now to come back to Psalm 146, and you might like to have the text open in front of you on page 13. As we come to this psalm, following the opening call, Alleluia, the psalm goes on to tell us about God. And we can identify two themes. First, a false hope. Second, the one true hope. So, a false hope. Just have a look at verse 3. I may have a slightly different translation to you. Do not put your trust in princes, in mortals, in whom there is no help. When their breath departs, they return to the earth. On that very day, their plans perish. Psalm 146 was most likely written in the 6th century BC, the era when the Jewish people were in exile in ancient Babylon. They were thankful to Cyrus, the Persian leader, who in 520 BC had decreed that they be allowed to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the city and the temple. But the psalm says, don't put your trust in princes. The psalm is a warning against trusting the influential, people who seem to be able to make things happen as opposed to God. It's speaking about the powerful, the rich, the elite, the celebrities, people who seem to offer what's needed for a better world. But the psalm warns, don't put your trust in princes, in mortals, in whom there is no help, no salvation. Even good leaders will disappoint us. None of them can offer real, lasting solutions to all the world's problems. They're not saviors. But their big, biggest problem is they all die. Now, Paul the Apostle, in his letter to the Romans, chapter 13, tells us that God has given us governments for the good order and protection of society. 
in a flawed, troubled world, we need them. Indeed, in his mercy, God uses governments to provide a framework for justice and peace, and in the West today, security, we pray, education, healthcare, and so on. In another letter, 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul exhorts us to pray for all in authority so that everyone may enjoy peace and so that the gospel can be promoted. Now, when we think about it, God's usual way of providing for our practical needs is through human agencies. God the Father provided a family for his son when he came amongst us in person, Mary and Joseph. During the course of his public ministry, wealthy women provided financial support for Jesus and his disciples. Some of their names are listed at the beginning of Luke chapter 8. We can also say that God's usual way of helping us today is through human agencies. It may be a loving and faithful marriage partner, good and wise friends, faithful ministers equipping God's people to grow in the riches of the faith through the ministry of God's word, and ministers who promote the gospel in the wider community and initiate practical care for the needy. Furthermore, God uses human means to help us find our way through the challenges of life. So if you'll permit me a personal reference or two, I thank the Lord for people such as Professor F.F. F. Bruce, whose book on the New Testament documents was key when I was in my late teens and working through questions such as the authority of the New Testament and the physical resurrection of Jesus. I thank God for John Stott, who taught me how to expound the Bible and to think strategically about gospel ministry. I thank the Lord for my parents, who taught me to love and honour the Lord and who modelled a loving and stable marriage and providing a loving and stimulating home. I thank the Lord for Judith, my wife, for her love and faithfulness, wisdom, perseverance with me through the adventure of life that God has drawn us into. I thank God for our children, who now in their adult years bring joy to both Judith and me. I thank the Lord for the unexpected invitation from the late Timothy Keller to set up a reformed Anglican church to complement the ministry of Redeemer Presbyterian Church here in the city. I thank God for the many he raised up to be with us, to work with us and support us in the formation of Christ Church and also what is now Emmanuel Anglican Church in the West Village. And let me say, it's a privilege to see some here today who were with us along the way, including Clifford Swartz, who was Associate Minister, and I think I've got the dates right, from 2008 through 2011. And I thank the Lord that God's word continues to be taught under Keith's ministry here.
but, and what an important but it is, my greatest thanks are to the Lord himself for his love and countless mercies through the years. God is the almighty and eternal Lord whose ways are just and true. Thinking about these words in my own ministry, I must encourage everyone to work with a paradox. Trust me when I say, don't put your trust in me. One way or another, I'll fail you. And certainly the day will come when I too will pass from this world. The warning about a false hope in Psalm 146 has lost none of its relevance through the millennia. Which brings us to a second theme, the one true hope. Just look at verse 5. Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. Now I'm sure you've noticed what the psalm is saying. God who made unbreakable promises to the Jewish people is not only the source of true help in life, but also our one and only hope. And so look at verse 6. The Lord who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. The creator God isn't fickle. He always keeps his word. Now, the notion of a creator God is aggressively dismissed today. But think about it. Some of the finest scientific minds insist we're not here by chance. The universe is the work of a supreme intelligence. In his book, Science and Christianity, Conflict or Coherence, Professor Henry Fritz Schaefer, one of the world's leading quantum chemists, writes that Dr. Alan Sandage was a brilliant cosmologist who's responsible for our best values for the age of the universe, something like 14 billion years. Dr. Schaefer records that when Alan Sandage was asked, how can one be a scientist and a Christian? He responded, the world is too complicated in all its parts and interconnection to be due to chance. I am convinced that the existence of life with all its order and each of its organisms is simply too well put together. Furthermore, Professor Schaefer reports that Dr. Sandage also stated, the nature of God is not to be found within any part of the findings of science. For that, one must turn to the scriptures. And that's what we're doing this morning. Psalm 146. So come back to verse five. It's telling us that each new day that dawns is a sign of God's handiwork. Indeed, with a change of seasons, summer to autumn, autumn to winter, winter to spring, we see signs that God is faithful, that he can be trusted. But there's something else about God. He's not only faithful, he is our saviour. Look at verse seven. 
The Lord executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. God knows far better than we do the mess the world's in. Our broken relationship with our maker has led to a world where there is a strange confusion of good and evil. So notice how the psalm speaks of this in verses 7 through 9. People are oppressed, hungry, imprisoned, blind, depressed, righteous, outsiders or immigrants, widows and fatherless. I'm sure you notice the odd word in that little collection, the word righteous. In the midst of a lost world where people experience various troubles, both literally and metaphorically, there are God's people, the righteous. The righteous are those who are righteous because they've turned to the Lord and trusted his word. They've sought his forgiveness and God has declared it. They trust the God who is faithful, the God who has good news to offer a broken world. Significantly, verse 9 tells us there'll be a day of reckoning, for God is a God of justice. God will vindicate his people who are oppressed, who are feeling the pressure of a hostile world because of anti-Christian oppression, perhaps at work or in the wider community. God will also feed the hungry, people who long to have their deep felt needs met. And I'm reminded of Johnny Erickson Tata, who says she longs for the day when she'll no longer be a quadriplegic. For the present, she says, she's in God's waiting room. God will also release all who know they are slaves to the desires of their hearts. Malcolm Muggeridge, one-time editor of the English Punch magazine, said that men and women without God are imprisoned in the dark little dungeon of their own ego. When we turn to God in true repentance, God promises to release us from our bondage to self and declares us to be his people. He'll also open the eyes of the blind. He'll care for those who are bowed down in grief. So let me say again, the psalmist is not saying there is no place for human agencies. The question he's asking is where do you really put your trust? in the powerful and the influential of the world, or the Lord God? Where's your hope? Now you may be thinking this, this is nothing but pious platitude. Look around you, listen to the news, wickedness and injustice are rife. How can the psalm writer have this wonderful confidence? Well, the answer lies in his understanding of God. The psalm writer is speaking about the God who has revealed himself, who's made promises and is committed to his word. 
And verse 5 tells us this God is the God of Jacob, the God who always keeps his promises. Verse 6 tells us this God is the creator of heaven and earth. Verse 10 draws it all together, telling us that this God is the sovereign Lord. So when we consider this psalm, we see we have more reason to be confident in what it says than even the psalm writer himself. For we live on the other side of the birth of a boy who was born on the edges of the most powerful empire in the first century AD. The boy who grew up to show compassion for the blind, he gave them sight. The man who cast out the powers of evil at a word. The man who through his healing of a quadriplegic authenticated that he has got God's authority to forgive sin. The man who could even raise the dead to life. The man who could out-debate the smartest and sharpest minds around him. And yet the man who allowed the Roman and Jewish leaders at the time to condemn him to the most unjust death the world, the world has seen. But that was not the end. He's the one man in history not to be held by the chains of death, for he rose to life again. His resurrection not only authenticates the words of the psalm, but also the Bible as a whole. This is the God we're talking about. This is the God who's not just creator, but the rescuer of flawed men and women. He alone can be trusted. He alone is our hope and joy. Now, if you don't believe that God is working out his cosmic purposes, cynicism and despair are your only recourse. No man or woman can provide the rescue that we need. The last 100 years or more have been stained by the blood of millions upon millions of men and women. Whether you can say alleluia at the beginning and the end of this psalm depends first and foremost on whether you believe. And that's a very personal question, isn't it? Each one of us has to decide. Look back at verses one and two. The first, personal, first person pronouns there, my and I, reveal a very strong personal emphasis. And when the psalm writer says, God remains faithful forever, he's not just reciting a creed in some mindless fashion. He's revealing a deep personal conviction. Alleluia in the psalm is not some mindless ritual, but the expression of a deep personal faith that springs from an understanding of the God who is not silent, but who has spoken and revealed himself to the nations. As Psalm 146 unfolds, we're drawn into a closer, richer understanding of God. 
And when we consider this in the light of the New Testament, we see more clearly just who Jesus is, the Son of God who's come to rescue us. And so we're also called to respond, not just in praise and thanks, but in true repentance, acknowledging that we have not honoured the Lord as we should, and then in giving our lives to his service. When Tim Keller invited me to set up a reformed Anglican church in Manhattan, he pointed out that a biblically grounded, outreaching, gospel-focused Anglican church could attract people that Redeemer's ministry was unlikely to reach. The scriptures reveal that God is not just our creator. Rather, in his great mercy, God is committed to draw to himself from across the nations, throughout time, countless numbers of men and women who are lost. God is a missionary God. God has given or God gave Judith and me an experience on a circle line trip around Manhattan in June 1998 that alerted us to the reality that God had a new course planned for us and for our ministry to leave Sydney, Australia and to come New York to New York. And when Tim Keller's call came, we saw that it was from the Lord. In fact, when Tim Keller was introducing us to the Redeemer Church Board, he likened our experience to Paul the Apostle's call from the man from Macedonia. It was a privilege under God to take up the invitation in January 2001 even though we encountered many unexpected and tough challenges, including the events of 9-11 when we were living downtown that year. To come back to Psalm 146, let me ask, do you truly want to worship God? Open your minds and hearts to him and to the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider God's unchanging character, his special love and his majesty, which will one day dazzle the universe. When God will be seen in all of his might, majesty, dominion and power, God's final triumph will eliminate all evil and rebuild the paradise of Eden lost. Friends, when we focus our minds on this God and let our hearts be drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll find that whatever us the song of our experience was in the past, it will finish with Alleluia, the heartfelt song of praise, of hope and joy, because God is truly good loving and merciful. 
No wonder Paul the Apostle writes in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The Lord will reign forever, your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord, we read in Psalm 146, verse 10. And now that God has come, in, come amongst us in person, the Lord Jesus Christ, we can truly sing with the Alleluia chorus of Handel's Messiah, and he shall reign forever and ever. Alleluia. 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 Alleluia.